Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast. Got a very exciting episode for everybody today. Today is a Baptist Broadcast interview, and this interview is going to be with Scott Meadows. This is going to be a very special uh, interview for the very reason that uh, Brother Scott Meadows has been in the ministry for 33 years, I believe, and I just clicked out of where I needed to be. He's pastor of uh, Calvary Baptist Church uh, in Exeter, New Hampshire, and um, and so he's going to be joining me today. We're going to be talking about the first chapter of the Second London Confession of Faith, and here's the problem. The first chapter is expansive. You cannot fly through it in one episode or one podcast, and so we actually only end up getting to paragraphs four and five, and so we've left room open for doing a part two. Uh, maybe we'll have an extra person with us doing part two, uh, Stefan Lindblad, who's a professor at IRBS. Um, so we're trying to get that set up. Anyway, hopefully you enjoy this interview. God bless you guys. Well, I'm here with uh, Brother Scott Meadows, and um, we are going to be talking about the first or the second London Baptist Confession of Faith, the first paragraph of the second London Baptist Confession of Faith. And so this is um, uh, special for me. Hopefully it'll be special for you and, and helpful. Um, this, is a, this is a crucial chapter in in our confession, because it, it deals with a very foundational issue, which is the nature, um, authority, um, and the, the placement, really, of Scripture in terms of the rest of our faith, and it puts it at, it puts it at chapter one for that very reason. And so, uh, without any further ado, I'll just ask Brother Scott, introduce yourself, kind of where, where, where are you in ministry, what kind of got you there, and and um, we can people can kind of have an understanding of who who we're talking with today. Thanks very much, Josh, for inviting me to be on your program today. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, well, I'm serving for 31 years now as pastor, a pastor at Calvary Baptist Church of Exeter, New Hampshire, and uh, my wife is Kathy Meadows. And we uh, have our 41st wedding anniversary this Sunday. So we married young. But, and, uh, you, and, and you married up. I definitely did. <laughs> Anybody who knows both of us will tell you that. So um, I have served in the pastoral ministry for 33 years. I was two years before Exeter at a church in New York, Maine, as an assistant pastor. And for almost seven years before that, I worked as an electrical engineer and uh, left that field to serve the Lord in the church. Well, we're grateful for you, for your ministry. And, um, you know, uh, Scott hasn't written any uh, tomes or uh, voluminous sets uh, like you see behind him or behind me. Uh, but you have someone in the ministry. He has written some things. You've, you've, you, you just recently contributed to a book also. Um, yeah. I, I have written some things, um, and a couple of little things are published. Uh, one is my booklet, God's Astounding Grace, which is a simple biblical explanation and defense of the doctrines of grace. And it avoids buzzwords so that people in the churches who would be triggered by terms like limited atonement 
would uh, not necessarily be triggered by my booklet because I avoid those those terms and yet set forth the very doctrines of grace right from the Bible. So that's been helpful to many people. And then another a book I have, a small book, is called A Call to Pure Worship. And this fleshes out the regulative principle of worship and its biblical basis. Uh, I interact a little in a debate between T. David Gordon and John Frame on the question in that yeah. book. And then a couple of chapters as well to just exhort the churches to worship scripturally, which yeah. doesn't seem like... Uh, you know, a, a request that should be unwelcome to the churches to worship according to God's word. So uh, those two things are out there. And then I have contributed to journals and magazines and blogs on the internet. The Herald of Grace blog has hundreds of my essays or messages on it. You can do a search for my name at heraldofgrace.org and find, for example, 167 messages by me just on the 119th Psalm is there. <laughs> so when you pass for decades and you have your nose to the grindstone and you write, you produce a large volume of output. Yeah, yeah. It's, it just comes with the ministry and being, being in it that long. And where I was going with, uh, with the uh, authorship um, remark is is that you've been in ministry for three decades, over three decades. And, um, and inevitably, you are going to, in that amount of time, uh, develop a, uh, a keen understanding of, like what we're talking about today, uh, the doctrine of Scripture. And you're going to develop that understanding within a pastoral context, such that you're not, you're not aloof from what's going on within the church, you know, you are, you are developing this, this wisdom and knowledge within that context. So I think it's, I think it's very helpful to, to talk to pastors that have been pastoring for a lot longer than myself. You, you mentioned a book that I just recently contributed to. Let yeah. Me, let me grab yeah. that. So here's, here's the book, Why I Preach from the Received Text, an anthology of essays by Reformed ministers, and the uh, editors are Jeff Riddle and Christian McShaffrey. And so I, I had the privilege of just writing one essay out of about 20, 25 or so in the book. So that was the recent publication yep. uh, that featured. Yep, that was what I was thinking of. Um, and I actually just purchased a copy of that book. So hopefully I will be able to, uh, to get into it. Yeah. So with that said, we can just uh, we can just get right into the confession. What I want to do is I want to I want to really center our attention, if, if possible, around uh, paragraphs four and five. Um, but Scott, if you could give us maybe just um, a bird's eye view of of the chapter itself. You know, we don't have to dip down into every single uh, paragraph, although that is the temptation because it's all great material. But if you could just kind of give the the maybe perhaps the the summary thesis of the first chapter, and then and then help us kind of understand what what the context, what's the historical context as well, what's some of the motivations for even writing something like this, um, and uh, of course that ties in with the Savoy and the Westminster as as contextualizing and source documents as well. But yeah, just just help our listeners understand kind of 
why the why the first chapter of the second London Confession? Well, it's a it's setting forth a basis for theological knowledge, especially that which is uh, the fruit of special revelation or verbal divine divinely inspired verbal revelation, uh, and of course that is Scripture alone. Um, the the historic uh, slogan "Sola Scriptura" is highly um, illuminated by Chapter One of the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. It's it helps a great deal. In fact, I'd say it's indispensable for an accurate understanding of the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith to have a good deal of knowledge about the about historical theology. Uh, the, the theological environment in which this document was produced, the tradition of thought leading up to this particular expression of Orthodox Christian faith with its several distinctives uh, from, for example, well, first of all, Protestant distinctives, but secondly, uh, Baptist distinctives in contradistinction with Presbyterian and Congregational confessions, the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Savoy Declaration particularly. Um, so as a broad statement, I would say that's the significance of the chapter. It's, it's, there's nothing distinctive about it from the Presbyterians or Congregationalists in its doctrine of scripture. Substantially, it's, it's affirming the very same view. Uh, and that's a view held generally by Protestants. Although I'm very admiring of the fullness of the statement of the doctrine of scripture that is in our 1689, um, wrote an essay called What's So Fine About the 1689? <laughs> and one of the, one of the, and I actually think it's the finest confession of faith that the Church of Jesus Christ has ever produced. Um, I don't know anything that's equal to it. And um, one of the reasons for that is the time in which it was produced was the flowering, uh, really, of the age of Protestant scholasticism. And it was around this time in church history that Cartesian uh, philosophy uh, and rationalism began to undermine um, a more traditional orthodox view of the Christian faith in general and the doctrine of scripture in particular, as I understand it. So the 1689 is, is uh, toward the very end of that period we could dub Protestant scholasticism. And for that reason, it's, it's a rich, um, rich and precise statement of what the finest Christian minds and theologians concurred to, to confess. And don't you think like in the in the case of the 1689, uh, maybe this isn't as profound or or maybe it's not as protrusive in the Westminster Confession of Faith because they take a different ecclesiological stance. Um, but in the 1689, it would probably be safe to say that the, the, the framers of the 1689 or, or the editors, presumably Cox and Collins, Nehemiah Cox and William Collins, had in mind two uh, ecclesiological errors and corresponding to those errors, two entities or organizations 
that would have necessarily kind of uh, affected the way in which they they uh, adapted this confession from the Westminster and the Savoy. So, for example, chapter 26 is one of the longest, it's the longest chapter in the confession on the church. And, um, and, and so, you know, they're thinking in the background here and, and contextualizing a lot of the words, even in the first, even in the first chapter, to some extent, is Roman Catholicism and Anglicanism, or the Church of England, um, who were, both of which were, were antithetical to uh, Congregationalist and Baptist polity, um, and I th- and I think what what often happens is we forget when we're reading a when we're reading you know chapter one for example what they were working in light of or what they were working underneath rather um, uh, historically, and that that's necessarily going to help us understand you know what their emphases are. And what they're trying to rebut, uh, you know, we're about to get to in, into a paragraph, paragraph four, um, you know, the, the authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church. You know, there's a there's a historical context to to statements like that that's that that affects the authorial intent. Um, would you Absolutely. say that that'd be safe to say? Absolutely. I, I know that I did not realize when I was new, newer uh, studying the 1689 Confession a lot about it. And after these decades of teaching through all the content, uh, the paragraphs of, of the 1689 and such, um, I have come to realize that it is a most virulent anti-Romanist doctrinal statement that the more we grasp what Protestants um, held against the post-Tridentine Roman Catholicism, um, the more we see um, implicit repudiation of Rome's errors as they were considered by the Protestants and the particular Baptist in particular of the 17th century. So, I, I, in my opinion, no one is competent to to expound the 1689 unless they're pretty thoroughly versed in Roman Catholic doctrine of that time period. Yeah. Um, you can also see evidences that the particular Baptists who drafted the 1689 were were determined to distance themselves from what we might call fanatics or enthusiasts. Uh, there was a an allegation or, or that they were Anabaptists, or at least a confusion of them with Anabaptists. Mm-hmm. And some of the Anabaptists of those days were wild, um, wild charismatics, you could say, with bizarre ideas about theology and how God speaks to us and how to organize society and things like that. Yeah. And uh, C89 definitely takes shots at them, even in this first chapter, when it comes to the, you know, the definitive statement, um, a couple of definitive statements about uh, enthusiasm, and by that I don't mean emotional excitement, but those who fancy themselves to be prophets with a word from the Lord. Yeah. So, 
Um, is it in is it in chapter uh, paragraph one? Um, right, where it talks about if I might read a uh, sentence from paragraph one, therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church and afterward for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of uh, the flesh, malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same holy unto writing which makes the holy scriptures to be most necessary. Those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people now being uh, ceased. Yeah. So there's a statement of cessationism concerning verbal revelation, I do believe. Yeah, 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 for sure. And, and, um, and, and to understand, you know, kind of politically and theologically what was going on in the 17th century, I think is incredibly valuable for that, for that very reason. So when we come to the... Yes, one, one yeah. more target I mentioned uh, is I think, think they were aiming also to repudiate rationalism as a philosophy. And this is important uh, to distinguish between rational thinking and rationalism. So rationalism is where the mind of man essentially is the measure of all things, and our Baptist forefathers rejected that. Yeah. Uh, while they maintained a fierce loyalty to the legitimacy of rational thinking. So, for example, in chapter ten, uh, chapter one rather, paragraph ten, the, par the the first chapter, sixteen eighty nine, says that the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are be to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men and private spirits or teachers are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Scripture delivered by the spirit. So yeah. they believed in a spiritual, um, spiritual authority of Holy Scripture uh, that in, as the ultimate determination of biblical truth not the opinions of men yeah and, and and on that same note to piggyback on that even even in paragraph one you see an, a, an allusion to uh to article the distinction between mixed mi preambles of the faith and articles of the faith in in the very beginning of the paragraph paragraph one of chapter one it says the holy scripture is the only sufficient certain and infallible rule of what uh, of of everything, um, because there are those who say, well, you know, you need to understand scripture in order to rightly understand and contextualize every fact of life. Well, no, there's a definition, uh, and, and it says the Holy Scripture is the most sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, which are the articles of faith. Um, preambulatory articles cannot save you. Uh, mixed articles cannot bring you to a redemptive understanding of of god and the gospel and so on and so chiefly what scripture brings to us is is that which we cannot get to by a naked reason we must have a divine source of of revelation that communicates saving knowledge you know in contrast to to natural knowledge um 
that we can glean through through creation. So I think it's it's you know we can it's easy to read just through something like paragraph one without appreciating the distinctions that are actually behind those words, the distinctions that are being made implicitly and and that are contextualizing the thought there. So we have in paragraph one, you have the nature, really the nature of scripture. Uh, scripture is sufficient, certain infallible rule of all saving knowledge, um, faith, obedience. So you have knowledge, content, uh, faith or or the tr the trust i think is is there thoroughly alluded to and then obedience what we are to do how we ought to worship god and live our lives out in thankfulness for what god has done although it says the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness and wisdom and power of god and that's your natural revelation and your natural knowledge as to leave men inexcusable there's a natural knowledge of god but that knowledge is not sufficient to give so this this paragraph here is really describing it's summarizing the the nature of scripture and then there's the content of scripture in paragraph two and then we get to paragraph three and talk about historical context there's a denial of the apocrypha there yes um and uh you know the, which is i can't remember how many books for sure is it 11 uh, apocryphal books that the Romanists include. Here, I, I did a year and a half series of lectures every two weeks on the first chapter of this confession, and I have my notes here in front of me. And according to my research, um, I say having positively identified the canonical books in paragraph two, the next paragraph three fulfills the negative task of repudiating the apocrypha. Uh -huh. These would be unworthy of mention, except for the fact of their acceptance by the vast and influential Roman Catholic Church. Which specific books properly fall under the designation as nebulous? The present Roman Catholic Church lists, and I give a list of seven spurious books. Historically, others have been included by the Roman Catholic and Orthodox churches. So that's yeah, why so I couldn't remember, because it's, 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 com it's a complicated question. Yeah. 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 And it's, and, and you, you'd mentioned that it's changed too. Um, yeah, yeah. And then right after that, we have paragraph four. Mm -hmm. So, so the immediate context to paragraph four is Romanism. Um, the definition of what scripture is positively stated, and then an aberration of scripture rejected or denied and then you have paragraph four on the authority of scripture in relation to the authority of man so i want to get into paragraph four what do you what are your what are your initial thoughts on paragraph four i mean what are they trying to what are they trying to set forth in paragraph four what's the purpose of it yes all right so let's hear the words of the paragraph first of all since it's short yeah uh, it says the authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. Therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of God. 
Now, I believe that this is a repudiation, again, of Roman Catholic teaching uh, that it, for all practical purposes uh, taught that the, the exact opposite of this, that the scriptures ought to be believed on the basis or foundation of the testimony of the church, which cannot err. And the Protestants and Baptists are here saying, au contraire, uh, the, the church rests upon the foundation of scripture, not vice versa. So that is essentially the issue. You cannot have, have it both ways and, uh, or have them as, as, as interdependent or equal to each other. If you, if you look at the modern catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, it, it speaks about how that um, sacred scripture and sacred tradition are, e are worthy of equal veneration. But this is uh, an error. Uh, first of all, the equality is not possible because what do you do, for example, when the scriptures teach one thing and the church teaches another? Um, and so the way that the Orthodox Protestants understood the matter is that scripture being the very word of God, it doesn't rest upon human testimony of the church for its uh, believability or authority, that because it is the word of God, it stands on its own bottom, so to speak. Uh, and the church is identified by its faithfulness to scripture, not the scripture being identified as the word of God by the testimony of the church. Now, there, there is a famous um, statement of Augustine that has been the center of controversy between Protestants and Romanists for a long time where Augustine said he would not have esteemed the scripture except for the testimony of the church. And this statement is abused by the Roman Catholic Church to assert that the Bible rests upon the authority of the church rather than the church resting on the authority of scripture. But this is not at all what uh, Augustine is saying. If you read other remarks of Augustine, it's clear he uh, regards uh, divine prophecy to be inherently authoritative mm -hmm. um, in its own right. And of course, that's all scripture is, is the writings of prophets that were divinely inspired to produce this text. Uh, so instead, what Augustine is saying is that it was the testimony of the church that caused him to consider the plausibility of scripture as the word of God mm. and moved him a reverent esteem of the scriptures, not that the authority of scripture rests upon the testimony of the church in some kind of foundational way. Right. So it's kind of like how, you know, you might have a, a beautiful house uh, built on a foundation and you can, you can tell something of the nature of that foundation and, and the quality of that foundation by looking at the superstructure um, and the way it's constructed. So it's, it's, even though the superstructure depends ultimately on the foundation, you can, you know, so that the church is the superstructure sitting on top of scripture and, and there's something, you know, that the church is not judge of what scripture is, but is witnessing to and proclaiming 
the truth of the word of God. And, and, and so you're saying it's, it's, that's kind of what Augustine is getting at there is, is that as insofar as the church is an instrumental means of, of communicating and proclaiming and, and witnessing to God's word, you know, we, yeah, we are moved. Doctrine. Right. Okay. That's yeah, I think illustration. Imagine the foundation under the skyscrapers in Manhattan. Yeah. You know, and if you do research into that, you discover there are extraordinary foundations to be able to support those tall buildings. Yeah, I think I think what when 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 we start talking about you know tradition, people start to get antsy and they start to think automatically. They begin thinking in terms of Roman Catholicism, and and you know understandably so. Uh, Roman Catholicism has for a long time ruled that term and, uh, and they've abused that term. Um, but when we talk about tradition or the testimony of the church or the witness of the church, what we mean is we're just pointing to Christians are just, the church is just pointing to the truth of God's word. We're not determining what it, what it is in any sort of ultimate foundational sense. Yes. May I make a comment uh, to go back, Josh, about paragraph yeah, one? Of course. So as you were describing the distinction between saving knowledge and knowledge of things in general, yeah, and the assertion of paragraph one that scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, as opposed to knowledge generally, mm -hmm. it just struck me that there was really nothing fundamentally novel about this statement in the history of the church right that there's a broad understanding even in the medieval scholars of the church that saving knowledge depends on on knowledge of scripture and is not available apart from special revelation right yeah so it's... i just that remark because i i've heard that some have uh, have claimed that a particularly noteworthy medieval theologian uh, <laughs> said that uh, we can somehow be saved from purely natural revelation. And I yeah, think that's, that's a yeah. correct claim, actually. It just, it just takes a perusal of the first 10 pages of, of that work in question <laughs> to see that that's, okay. that that's not the case. You know, it's, it's, it, was, it was fairly, uh, in my understanding, prior to... Uh, Tridentine Catholicism is it was fairly uh, uh, common a, a, a statement to uh, to make that distinction between knowledge in general and and saving knowledge or knowledge of the articles of faith, and it was also it was equally as as common I believe to to say that the only place from which we derive those those articles of the faith is through Scripture, um, uh, and so. Yeah, there's a there's a uh, there's a, a long background to to chapter one, uh, or uh, even article one there, paragraph one, and so it's helpful. You know, you going back to your words on historical theology, I think it's helpful to to resource uh, history uh, for that very reason. And historical theologians, medieval, pre-medieval, post-medieval. Uh, it's all helpful because it helps us to understand the meaning of these terms and distinctions being uh, being either explicitly made or implied 
here in the confession. And so I, I do think it's valuable for that reason. And getting back may to, I, yeah, go ahead. Remark then back to paragraph four. Yeah. And these, these are comments I've made in my notes on the paragraph. Um, it's talking about the Bible, not depending on the testimony of any man or church, but uh, being self-authenticating, if you will. Yeah. So um, I say uh, the divine author gives scripture its divine authority. It possesses a magisterial and absolutely supreme power commensurate with the sovereignty of Almighty God since it is his word. Mm -hmm. So this is what I'm saying is the, the nature of what scripture is necessarily implies the authority that scripture has. Uh, and then later I say in my notes here, to suggest otherwise is to impugn, whether intentionally or not, the very character of scripture as God's authentic word. How could God stand in any need of any human being or institution, indeed anything outside himself, to vouch for the authority of his own speech? Yeah. This applies even to the human writers of Scripture, like Moses and Paul, whose divinely written text, inspired text, written text, possess divine authority, not because written by them, but because the verbal message came from heaven through them. And uh, nothing else is comparable. Nothing else is required. The very proposal of such a prop to Scripture is inherently sacrilegious and idolatrous, because it would dethrone God and enthrone some creature in his place. Mm -hmm. In other words, what I'm saying is, and what the confession is teaching, is if any man or church validates scripture, that it's, that's inherently sacrilegious because it's saying, when God speaks, it's dubious, but when the church speaks, you can depend on our testimony. Yeah. So in this the Roman Catholic Church has proven guilty of crimes against the Most High. Yeah. So the Roman Catholic Church effectively takes the place of God and dethrones the authority of Scripture right. in inherent itself for what it is. Um, I, I'm afraid far too many professing Christians do not nearly appreciate what a spiritual threat the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church and the institution is to 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 the to the world mm -hmm. and to the salvation of souls. Right. It's idolatry. Yeah. And and in the in the in the confession, it's interesting that you know paragraph four deals with the nature, or we might say to use a a, a kind of egg-headed term, the ontology of scripture, what scripture is. And then paragraph five moves to our knowledge of mm. what scripture is. And mm. so when, when we, you know, encounter the modern debate between, you know, classical pre, you know, classical apologetics and presuppositional apologetics, which isn't just apologetics it, that those two philosophies, I think, really bleed out into other areas um, that are that are much more significant. Um, wouldn't wouldn't you say that, you know, paragraph four, the intent of paragraph four is not to 
preclude evidences for the authority of scripture that 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 bring us to a knowledge of the uh, of what scripture is um but rather paragraph four is is telling us what scripture is in and of itself as a result of having come from god yes yeah because you're i mean it's it's not it's not um it's not uh it's not dealing with their how we know scripture to be the word of god uh, that's what paragraph five does paragraph five yes. moves into our knowledge of what scripture is um yes and um and and so you know you'll have you'll have the more presuppositional-esque uh, proponents who who will say well look paragraph four says you know uh, you need to you need to receive it as the word of god apart from any evidences apart from any testimony of any man because that's exactly what the paragraph four what paragraph four says um because scripture is authoritative and my yeah. question is well how do we know that what we hold in our hands is authoritative right yeah, which is what paragraph five right. deals with. You know, um, probably ten years ago or fifteen, I produced and and uh, gave a course called a Puritan defense of the Christian faith, a Puritan defense of the Christian faith, and the whole course was an exposition, really, of questions and answers two and four in the Westminster Larger Catechism, and. I think these two questions and their answers are stellar, and all modern Christians ought to be familiar with them uh, because they're simple and scriptural, and uh, they have profound implications for complex questions like apologetics and how we do it. But may I, may I share with you what, what those two questions and answers say? Of course. They're such a great summary of, of the understanding of the times by our Protestant forefathers on these matters. So question two of the larger catechism says, how does it appear that there is a God? Now that's antiquated language, um, uh, but the sense is, how is it apparent to everyone that there is a God? Or how do we, the way we might state it is, how do we know that there is a God? And here's the answer. The very light of nature in man and the works of God declare plainly that there is a God, but his word and spirit only do sufficiently and effectually reveal him unto men for their salvation. Mm. Okay, this is so rich and, and sound. And then question four is a similar question, how doth it appear that the scriptures are the word of God? That is, how do we know the Bible is the word of God? And, and what, a, what a great straightforward question, and it should be of great interest to all of us what the answer is in such a you know, wonderful statement of the Christian faith as the larger catechism. Well, here is the answer. The scriptures manifest themselves to be the word of God. Mm. by their majesty and purity and by the consent of all the parts and the scope of the whole, uh, which is to give all glory to God. 
by their light and power to convince and convert sinners, to comfort and build up believers unto salvation. But the Spirit of God, bearing witness by and with the Scriptures in the heart of man, is alone able fully to persuade it that they are the very Word of God. Mm. So in both of these answers, there is an appeal to, uh, you could say, extra-biblical evidence for the existence of God and the credibility of the Scriptures. Mm -hmm. And then there's also a distinction between a kind of intellectual uh, consent to, to God's being and to the Scriptures being His Word, there's a contrast between that and a saving knowledge mm -hmm. that involves a higher degree of certainty, really, which is produced in and by the scriptures and the Holy Spirit working together. Yeah. Now, that, that should not be controversial among Christians today. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, it's, it's, but, you know, things have changed. I think what a lot of people also, um, may not know or or they may uh or they may pass over it as if it's not as influential as it really is but there's been a lot of change uh ideologically from mm -hmm. and philosophically from the 17th century to the present and a lot of the ways in which we we think have been affected by those shifts the greatest of which is the enlightenment period of the 18th century um, and, you know, seeds of that were sown in Descartes and all of that, but, but that even has affected the way in which we read this, con it affects the way we read the Bible, and then it yes. affects the way in which we read statements like, like these in, in the Second London Confession. Um, right. So now you have those who will say, well, paragraph four is the essence of, of presuppositionalism, and that way of thinking uh, presupposing conclusions rather than principles would have been totally foreign to the authors of this confession. Uh, it, it just would not have even been a thought. Um, as is, I think, evidenced by the two questions that you and their answers that you just read from the catechism, but also the distinction between paragraph four and paragraph five. You have paragraph five that says we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church of God to an high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures, the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, and the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, and many other incomparable excellencies and entire perfections thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. And so paragraph four is not precluding evidentiary appeals. That's right. Um, and so I don't know how, you know, contextually, we, and you're talking about the history, you're very helpful in, in kind of pulling out the historical context and what would, what would have been kind of in the in the background here once you understand paragraph four and paragraph five together and within their historical context kind of grasp the authorial intent you cannot get to the conclusion that paragraph four sows the early seeds of something like presuppositionalism it just it just i don't think you can get to that um yeah i, I agree with you 
Josh, uh, if you mean by presuppositionalism conceptions of that that became popular in the 20th century, I think one of the concerns that I've picked up on of some so-called presuppositionalist is um, they imagine that the traditional view uh, that you and I are advocating uh, fails to take into account what might be called the noetic effect of sin. Uh, noetic being a term that stems from the Greek word noose or mind. And um, we, but we all understand that in connection with the fall of man, the whole man was corrupted. So man's mind was adversely affected, uh, both in terms of its powers and its, its, um, its, um, uh, impartiality with respect to God and truth and so forth. So, and I don't think, I don't think that all the Orthodox through the centuries of church history um, denied, I don't think any of the Orthodox denied that man's mind was affected by sin adversely. Mm. Uh, however, um, in my opinion, uh, some seem to take this noetic effect of sin on the mind of man concept so far that they practically deny rationality to non-converted people, mm-hmm. and um, and and if if even in in spiritual or religious topics, especially there, but um, here the 1689 talks about arguments that are made for the validity of Scripture as the Word of God. And so traditionally, even among Protestants and the Protestant scholastic um, community, uh, there were elaborate uh, arguments made for the validity of scripture uh, that even depended on extra biblical scriptural evidence. Um, You know, it, it wasn't as if they said, first you must believe the Bible is the word of God, and then you will see that that makes sense. Right. Uh, they, they made a rational case for the plausibility of Scripture as the Word of God in, as part of their defense of the whole Christian faith. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and what is interesting about that, and I always appeal to Usher and Gill, because both of those men, you know, it just shows that you have two, uh, you know, you, you obviously have a, a, a Church of England um, uh, usher and then you have gill who is a baptist yet uh their methodology is um nigh the same and their arguments for the scripture are for scripture's authority and origin are the same in substance um and in approach and they both give you know internal and external arguments um i always find it interesting that you know when when presuppositionalists will will say yeah uh we, we, you know, we don't, we don't believe that, you know, external evidences are needed because we, you know, presuppose the scriptures to be true. And then they will, they will say, and this, and we do so because the scriptures are, are self-authenticating and, you know, bear, you know, bear internal evidence that, that they are the word of God. But even if it's internal evidence, that's still that still precludes presupposing, right? That that the word of God is the word of God because you're you're requiring evidence that 
yeah. signifies its divine origin, even if it comes from itself. Right. And it also precludes or it, it assumes the rationality of the investigator of scripture. Right. Yeah. So there's a recognition that the reader of scripture can think clearly about such things, mm-hmm. uh, which and wouldn't, the- you know, another argument that I've heard or concern I've heard is to appeal to an unbeliever on the basis of what is reasonable is to accede moral autonomy to the sinner. Yeah. And I don't think that is the case because I know I certainly don't accede any such thing to any, to saints, much less sinners. Right. Um, however, it is rather to appeal to the, the, the truth in various ways um, with a recognition of a, at least a re- residual rationality in right. the person that may not even be a Christian. Yeah, that the Holy Spirit can work through the means of those arguments and that kind of an engagement to yes. even draw that sinner to himself. Right. And, now, none of us imagine if we believe that what the 1689 says, that a good argument will, will produce regeneration. Right. But good argument might do is to humble a person sufficiently who is hostile to the idea of God in Scripture um, to reconsider and think about the claims of the Christian faith. And then in their contact with the gospel in particular, the Lord is pleased often to use that for a supernatural work of regenerating grace in their soul. So it's not as if a rational argument saved them, but a rational argument you know, convicts them and might arrest their attention. And then we preach the gospel to them as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, brother, I think we can put a bookmark in it right there um, for now and uh, leave open the possibility of maybe reconvening uh, at a later date to continue on uh, because we've, you know, we've only gotten to really paragraphs four and five and it would be uh, ideal, I think, to get to get through the rest of chapter one. So um, hopefully we'll be able to do that in the near future. Uh, we're both busy. I get I, I get that, but uh, we'll we'll figure out a time. Hopefully, hopefully this was helpful for for the listeners. And I just want to thank you, uh, Brother Scott, for taking the time to to come on here and persevere through technical difficulties and and so on and so forth. So thank you, brother, for that. I, I really, I really think it's been valuable. My pleasure, Josh. Thank you. And uh, we'll, we will, we will talk, talk with you soon.